Resting deeper, nine. Letting the body gently begin to sink deeper, eight. 8.3. Yes, it's like a, a push-button radio, you see. 24 hours a day. Whether you like it or not. Oh, we're limited to a 500-mile radius now, but we're working to extend that. afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is poet Robert Fanning. He has been the recipient of a creative artist grant from the Michigan Council for the Arts and Cultural Affairs, a Foley Poetry Award, and an Inkwell Poetry Award. His first book, Old Bright Wheel, was the winner of the Ledge Press Chatbook Award, and his poems have appeared in Poetry Plowshares, The Atlanta Review, and many other literary journals. Currently the program director for Inside Out Detroit Literary Arts Project. Today we'll be talking about his newest book, The Seed Thieves, that's just out from Merrick Press. Welcome, Robert Fanning. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. A real, a real treat, in fact. And um, as we do on this show, um, I'd like to start out with you reading from the book, and that'll give us a way to dive in. Um, if you'd read from The Seed Thieves, sort of early on in the book, there's a poem called One and a Half Miles Away from Dying. Absolutely. It'd be my pleasure. One and a half miles away from dying. One and a half miles away from dying, the people in this car, unaware their sacred closing moments are here, exhaust their last travel game. In the back seat, the girl hums, braiding her sister's black hair. The boy traces his name in breath on the back window, each slow letter squeaking the chilled glass, making his mother shiver. Like a fish trapped in thin pond ice, gasping, she stares into the car through the visor vanity mirror. Her lips glisten under the lipstick wand. Yawning, the driver's face is caught wide open in passing headlight amber, his left hand draped over the wheel at the wrist. His other hand tries to retrieve the lost voice of the late world news reporter, her words garbled by cloudbursts shattering over the flat horizon east. Shutting the radio off, he tries to lure his kids to sing one they know by heart. He turns the rearview mirror until it holds their three faces, half in shadow, placid, They peer at him below, his cheeks splashed green by dashboard light. The clock's last digit clicks one more minute. Beyond the blind curve, a truck's hulk of silver screeches over the median wall. An oil tanker, sparks raging, airborne, careens toward this side of the freeway, meteor tail of flame like a missile shot astray. Back in the car, before the turn, it is quiet. The people smile, doing last-minute things, one scratching an ankle, one blinking, 
one taking a breath, preparing to sing. Wonderful. Thank you very much. That's One and a Half Miles Away from Dying from The Seed Thieves by Robert Fanning. I want to talk a little bit about music and poetry. When um, We always have breaks in the show mm-hmm. that have little bits of music in them, and um, I often give guests the opportunity to... Um, choose the music which you did um, for the show and gave me a long list and in the letter that you sent me um, with the list you said I'm actually a more avid or rabid music fan than I am a reader and in much of the praise for your book people refer to the music Um, Sherry Faircock says Robert Fanning's music is percussive, meticulous and darkly funny Um, Thomas Lux says this poet's ear is beautifully tuned Marie Howe says um, when I look up from the book, I see the, through the window I hadn't noticed all morning. Outside, the returning birds are industrious as ever and singing. And Laura Kashishki also makes mention of um, the music in your poems. They are musical, dangerous poems, both sparing and wild, she says. So I wonder if you could talk about this avid, rabid music fandom <laughs> and um, how that translates into your work as a poet and into the poems in this book. I think that is a really interesting question, and I hadn't noticed the link there between... Um, um, what the other writers said about my work. But um, f- for me, when when I talk about writing a lot with other folks and talk about poets who influence me, um, oftentimes I, I fall silent because um, not that I, I mean, and especially recently, I, re- I read a lot, of, a lot more poetry than I ever did. But um, I really grew up listening to record albums and I had them spread out all over my floor. And, um, and music for me was along with writing, but but music more so was a real savior, you know. Um, I would put the headphones on and just get lost in it. And um, and even to this day, I'm still, when I go to Borders, I tend to beeline right to the um, to the music section. <laughs> Skip <laughs> I, all I, these I shouldn't say that <laughs> on Living Writers, but, um, but I do. And, um, and I, I listen to music when I write, which is an interesting thing. Um, do you choose particular pieces to trigger, or do pieces come from? How does that relationship actually, work? Well, I can't listen to anything that has words in it. Otherwise, I'm too distracted. Because I love lyrics, and I love especially music with a message. Um, there's a lot of horrible, ridiculous music on the radio now. I never listen to the radio, but um, there's a lot of independent music where there's you know lyrics still matter. But, but when I'm writing... I have to listen to music that um, doesn't have any words. And the song that opened the show actually is a, one of the most moving pieces. I often listen to that before I start to write. Which does have words, but they're in right. Latin. Well, exactly. <laughs> so non-English words. When, when there are words, they're usually n- not in English. Um, otherwise, I'd be distracted. But and, um, and a lot of the music I listen to is, I guess, been dubbed post-rock. Um, it's a lot of very cinematic, um, mood-provoking um, emotive music, uh, which I find really puts me in a place where I can write. Um, when we sit down to write, you know, we, we're covered in the dust from the day, um, and I, you need to wash that off, and, and, and uh, water's another thing that comes up a lot in the metaphors I use, but I find that when I'm writing, I need to sink. I need to basically be almost drowned. Um, I think if you're at the point where if someone walks up to you when you're writing and they touch your shoulder and you get startled, then you're in the right place. And um, I, I, I need to listen to music to get to that place. Um, but then it's sort of a soundtrack um, as I write, you know, for the words. So there's a huge link. But then when it, when it comes to language, too, I, I, I think a lot about the words I use and the sounds they they pro- evoke and provoke, um, the sounds that affect the reader's ear. Um, 
I, I guess as poets, you know, we, we aspire to music, to be musical, to be as um, powerful as music. I personally, I hate admitting this, but I don't think as poets we can do what music does. Um, it just, music kind of reaches a vein that we can't quite reach, but but we can come damn close, and that's what I'm trying to do in my poems. I want to use sounds, the sounds of the words that kind of create different colors and tones and emotions in, in the reader. That's what that's what poetry is about. Um, and the poets that I read sometimes, like Dylan Thomas is somebody I read, um, and Sylvia Plath, and... Lowell and Auden and Keats and poets who just have really what I like to call chunky vegetable soup poems. You know, there's <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by chunky vegetables? <laughs> what I mean is that their 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 rhythms, their stresses are very heavy. Their lines are very um, musically intense. Um, you know, there's a really heavy stresses. Um, and a lot, I I don't like poetry that tends to disregard music or not or you know the music of the language and or doesn't take it into account um, in the forefront. I. I there are some fantastic poems um, that have great messages in them, but I often feel like if it doesn't have something going on with the fabric of sound in the poem, I kind of lose interest. So so for me, music has been um, a huge influence and continues to be. And when I was actually at school here at U of M, uh, I was was really the first time I started writing, but I was in a rock band at the time and wasn't focused much on my English degree. I, I managed to graduate and do fairly well, but but even then, I mean, I was in a rock band, and, and um, uh, if there's anybody out there who wants to be in a band, um, you know, I would do that at the drop of a hat because. I don't know. There's something more immediate about it, but what do you play? We'll, we'll put the we'll put the call oh, out. Oh, <laughs> jeez. Um, I play guitar, but not very well. But as, as, when I was in the band, I was a singer. The so, singer. Okay. but um, so I, it just it it sneaks into my poems all the time. Well, in the one you just read, um, it's in four line stanzas. Um, it's sort of set up. Looks like a ballad on the page, and um, the rhyme scheme even. The, it's not obvious to the ear um, that the rhymes are there, um, or not overtly there, because they're off rhymes. But but that poem is fairly tightly has a tight rhyme scheme to yeah. it. Yeah, I, I think that's really important. Um, I think for other poets and for the reader, you want that to be sort of invisible. Um, if if that's too obvious, then you get distracted by that. But yeah, a lot of my stuff does have you know loose rhyme schemes or off rhymes. And did you choose the four line stanzas as a um, sort of ballad? Was it a, an intentional choice to to write in ballad form or not particularly? But I I just am I'm very drawn to quatrains mm-hmm. and um, a lot of the poems in here are quatrains and and with uh, you know rhyme schemes to them. Um, but but it works in, as a ballad. I'll take that uh, if that's what you see in it. But um, I didn't intentionally start out that way. I don't think you should intentionally start out writing in any form. Um, I think form you find halfway through or you realize that this is this might make a good sonnet. Um, n- you need to know what, what different forms will offer you. But this one I, I, I just started writing, and about halfway through I realized that uh, there's something about a rhyme scheme as invisible as it might be, that gives the poem a container that holds that sound in and kind of creates a sonic texture that's not only through the interior of the lines but also on the on the outside of the lines too. Now, as an undergraduate, you were here at the University of Michigan playing in a rock band and, and doing English as well, mm-hmm. sort of on the side. <laughs> and uh, then you, you went off at some point to Sarah Lawrence and got your Master's of Fine Arts in New York. 
how did you decide to um, put on the poet hat for real and um, leave the rock band behind? Oh, wow, that's interesting um, and easy to answer because I was actually in my last semester at U of M, and um, Thomas Lux was a visiting professor, um, and I argued with my uh, counselor who said, uh, you've, you've got to take poetry 101 or whatever it was. I had taken some upper-level poetry classes and said, that's ridiculous. I don't need to take that. But I had transferred in, and I didn't fulfill that intro to poetry credit. But as it turns out, it was incredibly fortuitous because Tom Lux was teaching, and who I didn't know. I didn't know who the hell he was. But um, but I, he was a profound influence on me, and, um, and he saw something in my work. and And then... At the same time, our our drummer quit the band. And so, <laughs> the drummer left. That's I was, yeah, they always do. Where do they go? Um, but I, but I was within I was within just a few credits of graduating, and I was thinking about not graduating because that rock band was going to travel to San Francisco and, and try to make it that way. But then our drummer left, and so I thank him for doing that, maybe because I wouldn't have been able to pursue the writing as much. But as I said, writing's always been neck and neck with poetry. So when I had that experience uh, in Tom Lux's class, and then he was teaching um he was the director of the mfa program at sarah lawrence and um and he suggested i should pursue an mfa if i'm you know that i have something going so so that's what brought me there and um it was insane decision to go there because it's so expensive um you know i i almost started weeping talking to one of the u of m mfa students recently because i know that they have this great stipend now and um i i had to tell them to stop talking because i'll be paying for mine for the rest of my life but it was it was very, very valuable time that going there and just immersing myself in writing for two years and, and really pursuing it. So, so now you're a poet, and uh, or, or you, but you want to go back to the rock band. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do pick up my guitar once in a while, and uh, and still like to play. Now. Um, we're going to talk a little bit briefly about what you did after that um, MFA program, and then we're going to take a short break. But after you um, finished your poetry degree with all this debt, which is quite common in MFA programs, although here at the University of Michigan, the MFA students are, are quite fortunate to have amazing funding, um, you went to work in Cubeville. I did. Yeah, I was I was lost in Cubeville for a couple of years, and... Uh, I needed a job really badly. I was we my wife and I had just gotten married and we moved to um Pennsylvania and then this job was in New Jersey. I was, you know, I was pouring over want ads and there was nothing in the poets wanted section. So <laughs> Nobody I like said I want a master's in no, finance and poetry was, to come was, uh, run my company. Yeah, there weren't weren't too many people knocking on the door. So um so luckily I there was this sort of hippie guy at a at a technical writing firm who saw that I was a poet who put I put that on my resume and and for some reason he thought that would be <laughs> valuable to their software firm. But anyway, so I, I was in Cubeville for a few years. I, I was a technical writer, and uh, that was a huge change, going from this oasis of Sarah Lawrence where I'm writing and immersed in writing for two years to being in a cubicle. And um, for a while there, my cubicle was empty. I, I wanted to keep the two things separate, my love of art and poetry, out of my cube because I thought it would, you know be a bad thing for the poem but then at some point I needed it so I started actually stapling poems all over the cube and I I, I made wallpaper out of poems so I, I'm sure they thought I was quite insane but um, those were a difficult couple of years so. you said you went from writing say 30 poems in a year to writing Three? Yeah, I, I, I maybe had about three poems in a few years, and and um, I wasn't able to make that transition back to the world as as a writer very well. <laughs> I came crashing down, um, and it took me a long time to realize that, um, you know, I can write outside of 
out of outside of the work and and I mean I was trying to but I, j- I was very uninspired and it took a lot of more effort. Well, we'll take a short break and then we'll come back and figure out how you got out of that hole. Sure, thank you. <laughs> Listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is poet Robert Fanning. We're talking about his newest book of poems, The Seed Thieves. And uh, that music in the background there for the break was um, Sigaras, is the only way I know how to pronounce it. And, uh, Sounds good. <laughs> we started out with um, Gregorio Allegri Miseri, and I couldn't find the King's Choir. Um, That's, that one sounded just as good. It was, it was all right. It, um, and we spoke in the first um, segment of the show about how this is music that sort of gets you to the sinking place mm-hmm. so that you can you can dig in. Um, when we broke um, for the music, you said you'd been sinking in Cubeville. How did you get yourself out of um, sort of three poems a year to um, this book of poems, The Seed Thieves? It was sort of a gradual progression. I, I, I moved back to Michigan and um, I, t- I had a job for a little while there with CitySearch.com, so I was starting to write uh, editorials and restaurant reviews, which is utterly ridiculous because I don't know the first thing about food. <laughs> and I was writing. Re- I, I had to bring my wife with me, and I'd say, "What's this green stuff again?" And she'd say, "That's spinach," you know. And I was actually writing restaurant reviews, which is hilarious. But um, so that was at least something a little more creative. And then. Um, and then I met Terry Blackhawk, who is the executive director of Inside Out. Who, who we've interviewed on the show. Yeah, phenomenal poet, an amazing person. And she handed me uh, her business card, Inside Out's business card, at a meeting we happened to both end up at. And, um, and that's what got me into Inside Out and into teaching, writing, and working with young people. And um, it just really broke me open. And I, so I've been working with... with adult writers working with young people in the Detroit public schools and just constantly um, lighting my fire and, and bringing that light to them, which I think is so powerful as, as a writer to be able to give to other people what you love. Um, there's so I, and, and I have been writing more, so, you know, maybe that's what it is. I think it's, it's just being able to give of yourself and, and get outside of yourself and your little world. And for those who don't know, the Inside Out Detroit Literary Arts Program um, sends writers and residents into the Detroit public school system to teach writing to K through 12. That's that? right. Yeah, we um, we work in the Detroit public schools, and um, the writers go into the schools for uh, 25 weeks throughout the year, and each school publishes a, a literary magazine that. I often say our, these books are nicer than most poets' first books, so um, it's a it's a, just a phenomenal program. 
I was lucky enough to work with y'all last year, and then I will I will second that. It's a phenomenal program. <laughs> you have it was experience. one of the most amazing experiences I was ever lucky enough to um, participate in. Well, let's hear another one of your poems. I wonder if you would read um, Green Stefania for us. And I I mispronounced it. Give me the. That's Stefania. Thank you. Well, you'll hear that. You'll hear the name many times when I read the poem. It's almost a, really a litany or a. A praise, a praise of her name. And um, I, when this book was launched last weekend, uh, I kicked off the reading by having everyone in the audience yell out the name of the first person they kissed, which was really profound, <laughs> hearing all these people yell out the name of someone they kissed. But this poem is about Stefania, and she's the first young lady I kissed. So uh, the poem's called Green Stefania. A full wood, wet bark shower, the fresh drenched trees, the leaves lush heavy, so consequently Stefania. Stefania, curled finger ferns unfurl and burst, loose spores string through mist and nestle, moss tufts rub, Rain-slapped leaves, Stefania, spring and drip on our deep-sogged glade, our soaked, sunk roots. Me and Stefania, in a hiding place, our slick lips soar from pressing together. Stefania, seaweed breath, burrs in your tangling curls, soiled nails and knees, giggling. Eden, Stefania, the smell of dirt. I never want to leave the world. Through the streaming wash of rain, through the windows and pale curtains, our mothers ache. Their bedrooms flicker with blue TV, scent of biscuits, chimney smoke, tea. Our fathers cup their hands against the cold glass panes and look out. It's dusk, Stefania. No one knows where we are. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Well, you mentioned in your introduction to the poem that the book was launched last week, was it? Yeah, so it's, last it's week. It's just hot on, off the presses it, and it. in bookstores. And it's, it's published by a new press, Merrick Press, that's based in Detroit. Yes. Uh, they, they are technically based in Gross Point, but... Um, and they just launched the first two books by Carolyn Mon and Robert Lipton in April, and then um, myself and Daniel Padilla and James Hart and Alexander Suchek, um, those four books were launched this weekend. And then Terry, who we were talking about earlier, Terry Blackhawk, um, and Kavita Kanpal and a few other uh, fantastic poets um, will be releasing their books in the next run. So um, it's a press that is brand new, um, but has huge guts and is just really taking a massive leap out there. Uh, Mariella Griffer is the public, um, sorry, the publisher, and she really um, is just taking a dive into this and um, going full force. You know, she wants these books you know, all over the world. <laughs> so um, that's what you need as yeah, a publisher with right, grand ambition. Exactly, um, and it's really tough. It's tough for a small publisher. I keep telling people it's kind of like a little rowboat trying to navigate into the ocean with all these giant freighters around you, and it's it's really hard. I mean, we haven't gotten our books on the shelves at Borders yet or anywhere else, so um, it's 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 difficult. But um, but she has tremendous guts and and ambition, and um, and so I think it's I it was you know it was a ga- it's a gamble to go with a new press, and I had to rethink about it, but. Um, I, I just felt very confident that, and I, I knew her, where her heart was, and and um, and I was grateful that they saw something in my work, and so 
I just went for it. And they, they've hired Ilya Kaminsky to be the new poetry editor, and he's a phenomenal poet. And Peter Marcus, who was the editor, uh, poetry and fiction editor, um, who found my work. Um, Peter is just a, an incredibly well-loved poet and uh, fiction writer around Detroit and the world, really, because he's so got such a presence and, and um, he's kind of a cult figure uh, out there on, on the Internet and everything. Peter's now the fiction editor specifically. but So they have some fantastic people working there, and they're just looking for writers not only in Detroit but all around the country. And um, Well, Ilya's based in uh, San Francisco. California, yeah. So, um, so it's great to have him aboard, too. Um, yeah. There's a lot of ambition. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, putting this book together, um, how you went from writing at Sarah Lawrence um, prolifically in the MFA program to the three poems in some years in Cubeville, mm-hmm. um, to finding your way back out of um, a place where you couldn't really write to a place where you, ca- where you can write in your, your current day job, um, which is also a job you love at Inside Out Detroit, you are able to go home and write in the evenings yeah, and, and find a way in. Um, when you were thinking about putting this book together, how did you think about it as a book? Did you find, I, well, here are all the poems that I have that I want to put into the same volume, or did you wrap something around this theme? The book's called The Seed Thieves. Um, well, honestly, this book is it was a real challenge to put together because it's not really thematically held together too much um there are there are really four or five themes that really intertwine and connect the poems but um and maybe to return to music i i I think of like some of the great albums of all time in my mind like the queen is dead by the smiths or albums like that one and i i kind of um that sort of thing was in my mind i want this to be my queen is dead you know i really want it to be um something that has different episodes for the reader so i did think sort of episodically cinematically almost like a film or an album um i had the poems spread out all over the floor but i didn't set out writing this as a book i didn't set out you know as a a lot of poets do with you know i'm going to write a book about x you know and it's going to be poems built around that theme um this one is really a, a kind of a loose collection of uh of lyric narrative poems um so and actually about maybe 25 percent of it is really still my graduate thesis poems that have been heavily edited and hopefully improved and then um and then i did have the chat book uh, a few years ago which was put out by the ledge press which was again a sort of another stepping stone to this book Uh, a lot of the poems that were in that chat book are in this book as well but um I really just uh, I, I write each each poem is is a separate entity to me in this book especially and so I, I threw them all over the floor and just and looked at where things fit together. Um, the title "The Seed Thieves" comes from a poem called the "Scarecrow Cross," which is kind of a central poem to the collection. And, and that title, um, the image is, is crows. And I think there's this kind of um, a lot of pervading thematics in the book about darkness and light. And those crows were, were very foreboding coming down into the fields. And um, so that's really the the core and the explanation of the title but um but i do feel like the book is very held together when when you when you read it It, and it does sort of have an arc uh it begins with uh, poems about death and and ends with poems kind of more that are more innocent and about love um and other lighter brighter things um but (laughs) it, it actually was the opposite at one point the manuscript changed so many times i had all the the brighter poems at the beginning and then the the dark ones at the end and um but i 
I think now it, it, it works for me. There's a couple sections where I'm still like, hmm. But I don't know if people read poetry from beginning to end that way. Or they dip in and out. I think... That's the yeah. that's the interesting thing for us as poets in putting a book together because you need to put the book together from beginning to end, but the reader isn't necessarily going to read it that way. Right. Uh, well, you mentioned a few minutes ago that Ilya Kaminsky will be is, has just been hired to be the poetry editor of Merrick Press, but Peter Marcus, who is the fiction editor, was wearing both hats when this book was published, and he's named as the editor of The Seat Thieves, and you thank him in the acknowledgments and say um, that he reeled in this book and hammered it to a telephone pole. Um, what was your relationship to your editor when you were coming up with that arc and when you were thinking about, well, do the lighter, brighter go first or the darker, how do we do it? I with? was very, very lucky because... Because um, Pete didn't have to get too deep into this. I think he saw that. I mean, I've been I've had this manuscript together for a few years, and it's been buffeted and beaten down by a lot of presses, and it's been it's changed a lot. But so it's pretty. It was pretty tight when I gave it to Pete. But um, so he didn't have to do too much with shaping the actual manuscript. But he ha- he was phenomenal um, in in looking at at each poem and in f- and finding certain lines. That were a little, just even the slightest things, um, because in my poems I, I really kind of build them obsessively and and hammer and chisel away until each line is kind of a separate piece of music. And so, but Pete was able to go in there and and actually tweak some things and make the poems even better. So he was phenomenal to work with as an, as an editor. But the book itself was was for the most part put together. He actually he actually suggested I knock out a couple of poems, which was really great too because. You know, as poets, we really hang on to every line. We hang on to every poem, and then to hear it's hard that to from, let those words go. Oh yeah, hard to let a whole poem go. <laughs> but um, but I trusted him. You really have to have trust in your editor, and and I've, I'm lucky to to have known Pete and and to know his writing, and and that um, that in my uh, thanks to him, that's a reference to his own writing. Um, he he has a book called The Singing Fish. Um, that follows these two brothers around and they hammer fish to telephone poles and do all sorts of other magically realistic and surrealistic and beautiful dreamy things. So um, so he sort of really did pull this book from, from the river and and you know, help me brush off some of the seaweed and, and get it ready. <laughs> get it right. Well, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about some of the the doom and gloom and the lighter moments as well throughout the book. You're listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. It's the top of the hour. My guest today is Robert Fanning. We're talking about his new book out from Merrick Press called The Seed Thieves. We'll be right back.
You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today, Robert Fanning, is the author of The Seed Thieves, a collection of poems. I wonder if you'd read another one for us. Um, how about Old Bright Wheel, which is the title poem from your chapbook and has also made its way into um, The Seed Thieves? Most definitely. And, and this poem um, was sort of uh, written to a challenge. I had been speaking to someone about who, who knew I was engaged to be married and, and thought that was utterly ridiculous and why would you ever succumb to that horrible tradition and it's a terrible thing. And um, So I had to sort of write this poem in defense of not only that, but the same person said, you know, love died with God. There is no such thing. So, um, you know. Good friend to have. <laughs> well, he, he wasn't necessarily a, a friend, but but, um, it, but it was a challenge. And I think any poet who's has that dumped in their lap, had better get to the words. So this was my defense. Old Bright Wheel. Listen to this chain grind, this cranking wheel of light. Listen to its slow fall and rise, its turn and turn and turn. How simply we could be stuck here on top or bottom. This is an old ride, a senior citizen of slow delight. Seems devoid, almost, of passion, of that skyrocket surge, that vehement near-death plunge. But listen, this is the bright ride I'm on, my revolution. What vast distance from here, Ocean City Ferris Wheel. I cover one eye, and miles away the frantic lights of oceanfront casinos blur. You see, I love her hand in mine, our dismay, our trepidation. I love this lock bar, this engagement to the plastic seat, the family ride. I love way down there, the prams and strollers, the upward eyes. I love our doubt about this slow pleasure, this turmoil, this grind, even more after the greasy ticket-taker's wisecracks about the age and recent failures of this ride. I love our secret urge to leap at any lurch, any quick stop. I love wondering if, up here, we might die. Thank you very much. Um, we started with a poem today on the show called One and a Half Miles Away from Dying. And um, you mentioned in the last segment that um, at one point you had the poem starting out on the lighter side and then moving toward the the, the death and doom and gloom. And then you switched it around and you had mm-hmm. things started in sort of death and moving. Mm-hmm. There's a, a lot of celebration in your book and there's also a lot of death in your book mm-hmm. and sometimes in the same poem as with, with this one. Um, well, you talk a little bit about um, some of the great themes. Do you choose them? Do you, you know, is, is death a particular preoccupation that you're after? Or? I, n- I never set out <laughs> for, to, example. for it to be. But um, what's really fascinating is when I had those poems spread out on the floor, it was an obvious thread. And, um, and the way I see it is if we're not grabbing death by the neck as writers, as artists, then, you know, what else is there? We're just piddling around. We've, we've, I mean, there's no greater thing to explore than that, um, you know, that our lives are finite. And, um, and I find that when, when I'm writing about death, and I, I think that death kind of sneaks in, death is the white space between the letters in every word. <laughs> um, it's in every poem. It's, um, so even though I don't set out to write about it, I always feel it's there as it is with you and I sitting here talking. Um, it's got us by the neck. So um, I like to turn and look it in the face in some of these poems and, and try to engage in a 
discussion with it. Um, but I never sit down and say, ah, I'm going to write a poem about love. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know I, I, that's the part of the mystery. You kind of go into a poem not knowing where you're going and then you realize you're somewhere and, and you try to find your way out <laughs> every single time. But I, I, I like Robert Frost's quote about um, a poem being the sad, happy blend of the drinking song. And I feel like I love, my favorite poems do that within one piece. Within one poem, you don't know whether to laugh or cry. Sometimes you're doing both. Um, A poem has to be emotionally resonant and gripping to the reader, or why do it? Um, I flip through a lot of of books and and I read a lot of poetry that, to me, is just, I mean, it might be intellectually stimulating and even sometimes emotionally, you know, it it registers on the scale. But but to me... A poem is is written is is kind of the storm where it's like a, a cold front and a and a warm front meeting up. And on my drive here, it was you know there was a really tempestuous sky, and I, that's what poetry is, and that's where the poems come from. You've got to find this place where the, where there's intensity, and oftentimes that's that might be death. But um, but then again, um, obviously it can be a cliche, and you you know especially how, and how you're writing about death, and um, and I don't think I write in a I don't think this is a, a book with um, there's definitely doom but i also believe that on the flip side of that there's a lot of hope and uh in the poem one and a half miles away from dying i mean we have a family in a car that's about to get hit by a truck which is <laughs> you, i don't know how much more of a charged situation you get than that but that was inspired by a friend of mine who had been killed in a car accident and and i just kept you know thinking what was what was her last moment like and um uh, that that's what we should be writing about and we live in a culture where you turn on the tv and and you know there's somebody smiling at you and there's music playing everywhere you go and you know it's a conspiracy to be conspiracy to be happy all the time which is actually unsettling and makes you more depressed <laughs> because you're not measuring up <laughs> <laughs> right your teeth aren't white enough your armpits smell and um, <laughs> so uh, i guess that's you know it it's the that it does creep into the poems um, quite a bit, and uh, even when it might be a but. But then again, at the end, there is innocence, there's love, um, and but somebody said once that every poem is about either love or death or both, and I think there's some truth to that. <laughs> uh, that every poem is about love or death or both. Would you say then that you, as a poet, are on friendly terms with love and death, or are you? Do, do you sort of circle around um, those perennial themes because you're and sort of flummoxed by well yeah well i i love this one quote by um i believe her name is diane arbus i always called her diane but i think it's diane but she was a phenomenal photographer who commits suicide and her images are just amazing she's a photographer in the 60s who took pictures of prostitutes and um mentally retarded people and just she absolutely went to um the parts of life that most people were afraid to look at and she has a quote Um, Everything is so superb and breathtaking. I feel like I'm crawling on my belly like they do in war movies. And so that's maybe how I I look at things. Um, Love and death, you know, are two subjects that are, uh, you know, I don't know if I'm on friendly terms with them or not. It's hard to say, but, but I definitely want to always be looking at them as I do a lot of other things. And there's more than just love and death in this book. Much more. (laughs) 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 Much more. Well, you not only write poetry, but you also teach. And um, you mentioned in an earlier segment in the show today that that teaching was one of the things that brought you out of Cubeville and back into your poems so that you could write again. Um, You teach very young children from um, kindergarten all the way through young adults and even adults. Um, How... 
when you're teaching people how to get their poems out on the page, do you, you give them advice you give yourself, or do you have another way of bringing something out of someone else than your approach to bringing it out of yourself? That's really interesting. I, I think you have to bring in your, yourself into the classroom, and when you don't, the kids can smell it, and they know you're not here, and you're just another teacher. Um, we have the distinct advantage of going in and, and, and actually getting to know our students and having them go places. when We're asking them for their trust, and we're asking them to to write about their life and the things that hurt them and the things that they love. Um, so it, one interesting thing that happened was when I was uh, in graduate school, when I was first really writing poems, um, somebody once, a friend said, you know, you're kind of like the ghost of poetry present. You know, you sort of hover over your poems. I don't know where you are in them. And I was very adamant about not writing poems about my life. And when I di- when I would write about my life, you wouldn't really know about it. And I still think that's important. You really need to be more universal. Otherwise, you're hitting the poet over the head with your diary, and who really cares? Um, but I found that when I was teaching these young people and having them get up and read a poem about, you know, their their grandma's cake that that makes them you know, that they love or their uncle getting shot point blank on their porch or, you know, just writing about the beauty and joy and tragedy and, you know, love of their lives that um, I was being a hypocrite. And and it's interesting. It wasn't really conscious, but I started writing poems and, and some of the poems in this book might not have happened had I not been working with these children all the time and having them write about their lives. I mean, there's something very, there's a great hypocrisy in asking a, a young person, a nine-year-old or a 15-year-old to to write about your life and, and to get it into a poem. And then I'm, and I'm sort of only skirting the edges of my own life. So um, they, they've had a profound effect on me. I, we, we teach because we want to learn. I mean, if you're teaching because you think you know it all, then forget it. But I mean, we teach to learn. And I've learned so much from these young people. Was that a frightening transition? In, to writing about my, my yeah, life? Yeah, to, to taking your own advice, the advice you gave them, to stand up there and sort of honestly put your emotion and feeling and life on the page. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've, I, there are a few poems in this book that um, that I'm terrified of. Um, and I, But I think... You've got to do that as a writer, as a poet. You've got to, if, you know, if you're, when you start writing 20 poems that are similar, you know, it's time to really go, what, what am I not, what door am I not opening and why am I not opening it? And uh, and it didn't really happen so consciously. I, will, I didn't think, well, okay, I'm going to walk through that door now and write about my life. It, I just noticed it had, started, had begun happening. I was writing these poems that, that, that were making me cry when I was writing them and that were dredging up things I'd, I'd long forgotten. But, that's what poetry is, and that's what we bring to these young people. It's life-affirming, and it, a poem makes you feel more alive. And, and, and what I've found um, at readings, um, I have a lot of poems in this book that I, I, I kind of think are almost, I don't know, they're, 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 more, they're, they're much more craft-oriented. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're, the rhythms are really constructed. And then I have others that are more, a little bit more direct, more free verse. And I wanted to have that array in this book. But um, what I find is when I read the poems about my life, those are the ones that resonate with people. Um, and, I, and it made me realize that, you know, these are, there are people out there who've been through the things I've been through, and it, and it, it builds a bridge. Um, it, I mean, if you're not trying to connect to other human beings, then why do this? You know, why, why sit down and, and write about anything? <laughs> you're out there to try and connect. 
Well, that's a fabulous place to wrap up the show, which I'm afraid we're going to have to do. Um, It's been a real pleasure having you on the show today, Robert. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. It's been a real treat. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today. My guest has been Robert Fanning, author of The Seed Thieves, recently out from Merrick Press. And we will be back again next week. Please stay tuned to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3, 24-7. We bring you all kinds of good stuff. And if you'd like to access the archives of The Living Writers Show, go to www.wcbn.org livingwriters, and you can find out information about streaming from the website or subscribing to the podcasts on iTunes. Thanks again, Robert. Great to have you. Thank you. This is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and you've been listening to The Living Writers Show. Please stay tuned.